Hi friends, I'm Olivia. And I'm Katie. And we are Podcast by Proxy. Welcome. We're live. I don't know why I whispered record to you. Record. (laughs) I'm sure everybody loved that just as much as I did. What if we did ASMR? Never. No, 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 no. I never got into that. Did you? Like watching and listening to ASMR? You know what? I think you have to find the right one for you because I used to like just come across them in my feeds all the time. And there was the odd one where I was like, oh, yeah. It kind of just it. makes my skin crawl. I don't know how everybody else... Oh, certain else... ones for sure. I don't know yeah, how anybody like... else feels about that. So I feel like some people love it, but it really just makes like the hair on the back of my neck stand up in not a good way. Like, not in a good way at all. I'm just like, ah! I hate it! Uh, welcome back to our beautiful show, Podcast by Proxy. Hello! We're back again. We're actually recording two today back-to-back because we... It's a dubla. ...are hard workers, apparently. We busy bees. Uh, we're busy, yeah. Um, so, of course, if you were with us last week, you know that we covered the case of Alison Perrot, and it very closely mirrored the case that I'm going to cover today, which is Christine You Jessup. say last week. I say six minutes ago. <laughs> last week. Uh, <laughs> Christine Jessup. Um, before we start, I actually mentioned this at the end of last episode, but I'm just going to open with it at the beginning of this episode for those of you who hear the rest of the case and then just they're like goodbye you're boring um we don't talk well you know you who else listens to some podcasts where they're like they just want to get the juice like the goods and then once the actual case is over they're like stop i don't actually care about listening to you talk some people i do some people i don't want to hear you talk about your patreon or your lives or your pets but some people i do yeah like i'm not offended if you don't but um i'm gonna force you to unless you want to just hit the skip button like twice um we don't consent is key you need ear consent (laughs) we don't talk about it too often um, but I just wanted to remind everybody that we do have a Patreon. We have uh, Patreon's a subscription service where you can support our show monthly and in turn get some benefits from us. So $1 a month, just $1 a month. Uh, Be your friends with benefits. Yeah, you could support the show, but you can also get all of these episodes without any ads. So the ads that you hear in the middle of the episodes, you don't have to hear those if you don't want to. Uh, $5 a month and up, you will get the same benefits, so no ads. You're also going to get to listen to the show a day early. You're going to get discounts to our Teespring merch store. I think there's other benefits that I'm forgetting. $10 a month, you're going to get stickers. You're going to get monthly bonus episodes. And you're also just going to support the show and make us really happy to be your friends with benefits. Um, So link for Patreon is in the link tree in our bio uh, that's where you can also find the in our merch Instagram store. bio. Instagram bio. Yeah, it's almost everywhere. Follow us on We're socials. We're whoring out our link tree. It's great. Yeah, that's fine. Follow us on socials at Podcast by Proxy. Katie's been really active on Twitter lately, which has been fun for me to watch. It's kind of hilarious. I don't know why she keeps throwing this out there, people. Because I... I literally go on randomly and just like... Because <laughs> often... I love it, though. I think it's fun. Quite often I don't get it. lately, I get Twitter notifications, and I don't <laughs> use Twitter. Like, I don't even open Twitter. 
And so whenever I'm getting notifications that like people are replying to us and I open it, I'm just like, holy shit, she is having a payday on the Twitter. (laughs) So yeah, follow us on Twitter at Podcast by Proxy if you want to see Katie shenanigans. I am on our Instagram pretty regularly. Um, You get a lot of updates like from cases that we've covered and things happening in the Canadian true crime space on Instagram. Uh, I think that's it for my ramble. I just feel like we don't like plug ourselves enough on our own fucking show. So here I am. Um, and that's really it. I don't know if you have any other opening things you wanted to go over before we start. We kind of did get through, um, kind of some of the updates at the beginning of last week's episode and because it's six minutes later there's not too much else that's happened i am checking something then. really quickly also i've been watching this if anyone knows this is totally an error on purpose but this amanda heard trial I've been keeping a close eye on it when i'm just like bored i check in on it here and there the amanda yesterday heard i watched quite a bit of it i just had it on in the background it's the first day i've had it on i would like and to know oh yeah keep, keep going and then i'll tell it's you. just the audacity of amber the lion the witch and the audacity, audacity of this bitch, of this bitch. Yeah. heather ashley from big mad true crime yeah oh my god just I would love to know how how long has this trial been going on? Like at least four. Oh weeks? my god, it's got to be like ten days now. Oh, only ten days? I thought it had been like fucking Babe. four weeks. It seems like it's been a lifetime. Eh. Anyway, it does. It it feels like it's been forever. It has been going honestly. On for... I I just need Joey Jackson to break it down for me, like he does with all the other ones. I just don't know if this is worth his time. It's been going on for long enough. I feel like like okay, obviously four weeks. That might be a little off, but like the long issue enough, was it's. It's technically two trials because she sued or he sued her. Then she sued him for double. Right. But like, so why like, is she just bringing up now that it was the dog that shit in the bed and not her? Have you seen the dog? Why? Was as big as the dog. The fuck did you not defend, use this defense when it came up in the first place? Like I just, anyways, anyways, moving on. This is not. Um, an episode about Johnny Depp and Amanda Turd. It is no, but just if not. you would like to discuss it, maybe we could do like an Instagram live. But we would need like a decent amount of feedback to do that because that would mean Olivia would have to learn a bit about it. I was gonna say, or I could do, tell her about it. I have she to do just so much more research because I just personally haven't been following it. If you know me, you know my thoughts. It's atrocious. It's not worth it. Don't do it. It just like slaps in the face of so many things but anyway oh in everything we've just like achieved and like it's just don't lie i think people that lie about it should just and it's just been made a reality tv show like i can't even take it seriously unfortunately um and there's a lot of really like sad things like johnny depp literally lost his career over this we lost another pirates of the caribbean movie and if they think that they're gonna make another pirates movie without johnny depp don't even try don't they even are. try. They've already announced it. They're well, switching it no, to no, no. a female actress, which actually was a good choice. I can't remember who it was. Just quit and give up and start something new. Like, you can't Margot do that. Robbie. You can't fucking do that. Oh, stop, because I love her and I have to right, watch and she's going to be a really sexy pirate. Oh, that makes me even more frustrated. I know, Because right? I have That's to why watch I was it. like, wait, wait. Because, yeah, I knew that was going to... You knew that was going to change my mind because Margot Robbie It was going to make is... you go... Huh? Yeah, Margot Robbie is like second. top three favorite actresses for me. So, oh, yeah, 
I would like to just sit and have dinner with like me and you and her and Jennifer Lawrence. I think we could all have a great time. The fact that Suicide Squad did literally so bad and she still got a solo movie out of it tells you everything you need to know about her. Boom. Like everything. Yeah. That movie Because everything good flopped. that came out of that movie was like Margot Robbie, Margot Robbie. Margot and she Robbie, still got her own Harley movie. Quinn, Harley Quinn, Harley Quinn. Yeah. A queen. And I really liked her movie. The Harley Quinn and the Fantabulous. It's the Birds of Prey. Oh, yeah. It's Birds of Prey, but it's like the the fantabulous emancipation of the one Harley Quinn or something. Like, the title's so long. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely like a girl boss movie for sure. But anyway. I'm going to go watch it after. Great soundtrack. (laughs) All right. This is a long one today, so we should probably just jump into it. I definitely... Good thing we're only eight minutes rather than our 20 minutes for last week. Yeah. I definitely considered making this a two-parter because... So my rule with two-parters lately is that there has to be at least, like, a clear enough line in the story that I can, like, make like it two stories. Like, the case has to be half, trial has to be half, or something, like, or very, like, like distinct. Just, it, yeah, there has to be, like, a distinct split between the stories. Otherwise, Too many people are doing two-parters lately. And I have to say, as a podcast listener, I am struggling to listen to podcasts because they're always two parts, and it it doesn't serve me purpose to do a two-parter because I just don't always get back to the second part in time. And it, I know. And I think I've just learned that I would rather just do a really long episode and just tell it all at once. Unless there's yeah. that clear line. Like there's been a couple that I've done where there's like a very clear line in yeah. the story where like the story ends and a new one begins and I'm okay to split them then. But long story short, this is going to be a long story, not short. Yeah. So we'll just jump Long right story, in. Long story, not short. That's what I, correct. That's what I said. So we're talking about Christine Jessup today. Christine Marion Jessup was born November 29th, 1974 to Janet and Bob Jessup. Now you did hear about Janet Jessup in last week's episode. She attended um, the funeral of Allison Perrot in support of Allison's family. Um, so that's kind of where the, the cases uh, crossover, if you will. Uh, Christine grew up in Queensville, Ontario. Uh, Queensville at the time was an absolutely tiny town. It had like 400 people in it. Yeah. It's actually now considered a village within the town of <laughs> East Gwillimbury. Not a clue. But this is around, this is around <laughs> the Toronto area. Like it's it surrounds the greater Toronto area. Yeah, there's a ton of small suburbs around Toronto. So many. There's a million. Like, yeah, and the... There's okay. actually so many and they're so small and close together that there was like four or five different ones in this whole story. And I just don't even bother going there because I didn't want to like explain where all these places are. So most of the time I'm just going to say nearby. That's what I did with mine too. I ended up just not really including even talking about where it was. I just used other locations like the bank and the intersections because everything is small areas that go into the greater Toronto correct. area. And it's like sober Wild. transit and everything. So yeah, I totally get it. It makes sense. Yeah. So now during this time that we're in, we're still in the 70s and 80s, Queensville was basically a handful of homes spread out around a general store, a church, a cemetery, and a playground. Oh, we got everything there. Pretty much everybody knew everybody, like very typical tiny village. Definitely a place where you just left your doors unlocked, didn't think twice about it. The kids went out and played without supervision, rode their bikes around the neighborhood, um kids needed minimal supervision we kind of chatted about this but it was really um a latchkey environment the the times yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. And and like a pretty core part of this town because it was so small. Like 400 people in one town, like you literally know everybody. Yeah. Yeah. You recognize when an unknown vehicle drives through town. Yeah. That's when you know your town is small. Yeah. How many stoplights you got? None. There you go. Village. Yeah. Christine, the village people. she had a brother named Kenny. He was five years older than her. And Kenny said that Christine loved baseball. She loved her dolls. And she also loved animals, especially her dog. She had a beagle named Freckles, who was her constant companion, which is just hands down the cutest thing I've ever Freckles. heard. And she also Taking had out. a pet frog named Harold. And I just picture you to be the type of child with a pet frog. Um. So... Olivia met one of my mom's really good friends the other night, and one thing that he called me out on is that I used to have those weird land crabs, because when I was a kid, I had, like, a fish tank that was half sand, half water, and I had hermit crabs. There you go. Um, I literally have written down in my notes. starter pet. Katie would be the type of child to have a pet frog. And there you go. She had pet fucking hermit totally. crabs. So I was We could do not. a total Patreon episode on all the weird animals I've had working in families that work with rescue my entire life. Yeah, that's true. Because of fucked up shit in our house. I also read somewhere that Christine had once slept outside beside baby chicks so that they wouldn't be alone. I slept outside with an, uh, a birdcage with the door open once because my cockatiel got out and was in a tree. I also slept outside. So, so I wasn't far off then. I feel like <laughs> me, Christine, um, and Allison all would have just been like great friends if we all could have hung out together as little kids. Yeah. So this girl was an adorable <laughs> little animal lover. Uh, just, I love it. I love her. I love it. <laughs> Our story really begins, though, on Wednesday, October 3rd, 1984, so only two years before Allison's case occurred. Christine was only nine years old. She took the bus to school that day, as she always did, and after school, she made plans to meet with her friend at the park. So it was like, oh, go home and I'll see you there. She wrote, I'm not uncommon. Drop your book bag like we talked about last week and just go right back out. Yeah, and they planned to meet at like 4 o'clock. So literally exactly that. Drop your book yeah, bag. Yeah, you're and out of school out. at 3.15. You get home by 3.30. You grab that snack, that juice box. You go pee. You drop the backpack and you are back out that you're door. You're gone. Yeah. That was me. I, that was my routine. <laughs> so she rides the bus home and Christine had a bike that she like loved. It was her prized possession. She was like... Uh, a man with a sports car always washing yeah, it. those are her wheels. Yeah, so she would, like, always make sure it's clean. It was very Aww. cute. And that is kind of part of the story, so keep that in mind. Okay. That's what she would use to go meet her friend at the playground in their small town. So if she was going to go yeah. out, she would take her bike. And she actually also brought home a... weekend. You take the sports car. She brought home a recorder from school that day for the first time. So she was really excited to show her mom and brother her recorder. We all remember our first recorder. Hot cross buns. (laughs) Hot cross buns, bitches. Why does anybody have to learn that in school? I don't know. Maybe it's like for like dexterity. I don't know. I feel like it's for reading music, but I also feel feel like it would be actually more beneficial to the population if they taught us how to play piano. Just Well, we didn't read music. We learned, like, put your fingers on these holes. That's true. <laughs> we didn't learn to read music. I'm not really sure then at all. Like, I have no... I think it was just for, like, teaching us to, like, focus and listen to how things sound if you're together. you're a teacher and you have insight into the purpose Mrs. Jane, of recording. if you are listening... <laughs> 
from Duncan Elementary in the 90s, Mrs. Jane. Please. If, enlighten please us. Please reach out to us on social media. I need and to know the purpose. God, that lady, little ball of passion. I when love we had that. Christmas concerts, she was like five foot nothing and just like, uh, 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 uh. like she was a such a different freaking composer. Yeah, it made such it a amazing. difference to have like pe- teachers who actually wanted to be there. Sam. Yeah, and then she cried after every Christmas concert, fall performance. She was like, ah. reasons why I her. didn't become a teacher. Same. So Christine, she's got a recorder. She's like, Mom, Mom, look at my recorder. Yeah. She gets inside the house and she realizes nobody's home, which is not a big deal. Like, she's just going to drop her bag off and go out, back out anyway. Huh? I said, damn it, who's she going to show her recorder to? She'll show them later. Okay. She really wasn't concerned. Like, it wasn't a big deal that nobody was home. She just dropped off her school bag. She grabs a nickel for a piece of gum at the general store, which was across from the park. And she headed out to grab her bike and meet her friend. Okay. Now, Janet and her and Christine's brother, Kenny, were actually visiting her dad, Bob, at Toronto East Detention Center that day. And Janet felt like Christine was too young to be going to jail to visit their dad. So that's why they went without her. Understandable. Okay. She knew that they might be a bit late, but also knew that they would arrive home like really shortly after she did. So again, they just weren't that concerned about it. They knew she'd probably just go and play with her friends anyways, and they'd see her later. And also just a side note about why her Bob dad was in jail. All I could find was that he was serving 18 months for quote, swindling elderly friends. Yeah. I thought it was fraud. Yeah, it was fraud of some yeah. sort. I couldn't really find an exact like charge, wire fraud but or something. I, yeah, like that. I found that it was eighteen months for some sort of fraud against their elderly friends, which is <laughs> okay. Okay, Bob. No comment there. Have fun. See you later after their little resort trip, Dad. Yeah, I'll just we'll just move on from that one. Uh, Christine, so she's supposed to meet her friend at the park at four, but four o'clock comes and goes, and she never showed up. Her friend waited for a bit, but. When Christine still never showed up, her friend decided to go home. Janet and Kenny arrive home at approximately 4.10, and they noticed that Christine's jacket was hanging up higher than she could reach. I'm not sure if they didn't, if they noticed this after or right away, but it was... Like right when they walked in. Yeah, like I don't know if it was like an, oh, that's weird, or if they just thought about it later, but... Her jacket. I think we look at things and we think things, but don't say them out loud. So they might have both thought it at the time. Potentially. And recounted and like that. Weird. But, like, it mm-hmm. wasn't until they were thinking about it after the fact. So, yeah, yeah. Fair. Her school bag was on the counter. The mail and newspaper had been brought inside. And they did find it odd that her bike was lying on its side in the shed with a damaged kickstand. Very strange. Yeah, I know. You think she'd be devastated and, like, wanting to get that fixed right away if that was something... Yeah, so that definitely okay. struck them as strange, but again, was like, well, it could have broken. She could have still gone out and walked to the They're park. They're all small and... things until you look at them all together. Yeah, yeah. Right, and it was like, the park was close enough that she could walk. It wasn't like she could get there. kickstand broke after she put it there. She has no idea it's broken. Right, that too. So yeah. they still kind of just assumed that she had gone out to play and that she would be back. By 5 p.m., Christine still hadn't come home, so Janet decided to go over to the park quick just to check on her. Um, She kind of said as much as the kids, like, played outside by themselves and had an assumed sense of freedom, she still actually always knew exactly where they were. Like, even if they thought that they were out being cool without supervision, like, we're so sneaky. She still knew exactly where they were all the (laughs) time. It wasn't super common for them to just go out and her have no clue. 
So she goes out. She doesn't see her. She also called the friend that Christine was supposed to meet up with, who told her that she never came to the park. Um, so she so went she home. Left. Yeah. At this point, Janet still wasn't panicking. She's like worried a little bit, but not freaking out. She thinks maybe Christine went to play with a different friend. There was a lot of Just possibilities like for a nine-year-old. Yeah, she was like, she's a social kid in a neighborhood where all the kids play outside. She probably just went and found another kid to play with. Exactly. So exact same yeah. scenario. Like, she's a little oh. bit concerned, but it's not really a panic yet. Yeah, it's not sinking in. So by 9 p.m., the sun is setting. Christine has still not come home. And this is when Janet decides to call the York Regional Police, was the police detachment that had jurisdiction over this area. Um, and it was really obvious to officers immediately that parental abduction or child runaway just didn't make sense in this case. Kind of the same thing as Allison. Like, immediately, there wasn't really any other... Like, her parents were so on it. Yeah, there just wasn't really any other and, option. So, immediately, yeah. a massive search is launched. Exactly the yeah. same as Allison. The entire town gets involved. that was the gut feeling with Allison. They just had to do their proceedings to talk to the parents, like we talked about. Person of interest versus suspect are very different, and... That's all it was. Yeah. So they launched this massive search. The entire town, people from surrounding towns, friends and family are out looking. Hel they have helicopters out, hundreds of local volunteers. It's a massive, massive search. Um, now, the York Regional Police at the time was super small. It was working with about one officer assigned for every 860 residents. So that's Jesus. a very, very large gap. There is wow. no major crimes unit. They had probably never even dealt with or seen a child abduction or murder at this point. Um, and this lack of experience really shows at the onset of the investigation. So, for example, when a constable arrived to the home, without gloves, he removes Christine's coat from the hook for a closer inspection. Detectives are coming in through the back and side doors. Um, the plastic wrapping of the newspaper was thrown away without even being dusted for prints. Like, Evidence was compromised, essentially. Yeah. A lack of knowledge is, like, just as damning as someone that wants to ruin the case. Yeah. And cases like this are why police have such, like, strict protocols that they have to follow now. Because just so many things get lost. And it's mm -hmm. really difficult to go to a trial with extremely tainted evidence. Yep. Bob Jessup is immediately released from custody when Christine goes missing on humanitarian grounds, and he and Janet issue a plea to the public for her safe return. During this time, Christine's face was on every TV set, every newspaper in the country. It's a frantic search by the police and the public to try and find her. Um, the, the York police assume early on, like we've discussed in previous cases, that Christine knew her abductor because, as we know... Most abductions, murders, crimes against the person, most um, aren't committed at random. We no, hear a lot of a very them small percentage. in the true crime space. So I feel like that can be a shock to some people that are very into true crime podcasts and documentaries because we just happen to hear a lot of the outliers. But for the most part, crimes are committed by the person closest to them or somebody close to them. And I truly believe the ones that are random, that are unsolved, that are random attacks, are going to link back to other people who were like serial offenders. I still think that number percentage is going to stay quite low. Yeah, 100%. It's just the way it is. I think that's just the matter of fact, in my opinion. But I think that's how, what we're going to see. Which, like, thank God 
for the most yeah. part. Like, can you imagine just having... Like, we are not having more offenders. The number of victims is there already. A huge Let's amount of random of offenders, offenders would be terrifying. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> like, terrifying. It would be like someone just taking a prison and opening the doors and being like, Bye! That should balance it out. Yeah, no thank you. Ugh. So the Jessup family, they supply a list of the names and numbers of anyone allowed to enter their home without a family member present and anyone who may have known that Christine would be alone that day. The police did conduct interviews and the search for Christine continued for months with no leads turning up anything. The Jessup family did not even put up a Christmas tree that year. They just didn't feel right celebrating without her. I don't blame them. Yeah, just absolutely devastating. Couple months after her disappearance, on December 31st, 1984, so New Year's Eve, a man and his two daughters went looking for their dog on the large property that was next to theirs in Sunderland, Ontario, which was about 50 kilometers from Christine's home. So about an hour away or so? Yeah, I think that that would be right. That's about the distance to Victoria, and I would say it's about an hour, give or take, yeah. with traffic. So probably about, okay, so an hour away. Yeah. It's there that they spotted a badly decomposed corpse just off the trail. The body was small and had multiple stab wounds to the chest and was dressed in a beige turtleneck with a blue pullover and a blouse with the buttons missing. Next to the right foot, there was a pair of little girl's underwear and in the grass was a recorder with the name Christine Jessup written on it. Do you remember when we got our recorders and your teacher would always write your name in Sharpie on the container or the recorder itself? Yes. Oh, I know exactly what that would look so like. So just break my tiny non-existent heart. Yeah. The body was confirmed to be Christine's and an autopsy would reveal that she had been raped and stabbed to death. The location in Sunderland where she was found was 56 kilometers from her home. And for reference, Sunderland is basically all like country roads, farmland, forests, backcountry, four by fouring, quadding, hunting. That's all it is. There is no. I can picture it. Yeah, we're very familiar with areas <laughs> like this. Um, but it would be very. Easy to dump a body, but I feel like you would also need to know the area. It's not really somewhere where you could just, like, go unannounced or not knowing where stuff is and not knowing where, like, the popular trails are and where they're not, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sunderland also is not in the jurisdiction of the York Regional Police. It's covered by Durham Regional Police, meaning that the case would now be transferred from the York Police to the Durham Police because that's where she was found. Okay. Which is always a big issue in a lot of ways. Like whenever you're transferring all of a file somewhere, there's always a risk of something getting damaged, compromised, lost. It's yeah. it just, it's the facts. And that's with any information, not cold cases or cases of any kind. That could be office information of any kind. I feel like especially in the 80s. Like I'm not trying to harp oh, on yeah. the 80s too much, but I just feel like there was a lot of disorganization going on. There's a lot of chaos. There was not very much order in the system. No, I agree 100%. So, you know. We've learned. We've come a long way. We've come a long way. Well, we still have a long way to go, but we've definitely developed. <laughs> That's an understatement. Mm, yeah. That's a song for another time. Christine, so she's laid to rest in the cemetery, which was adjacent to her family home in Queensville. And the Durham police would begin their intense investigation into her murder. Like, they're under incredible pressure by everyone to get this case solved and to get it solved quickly. Which can sometimes not be great. 
No, when you move too quickly because you're under pressure, you can make mistakes. Yes. Oh, do they ever. We all make mistakes when we try to do things too quickly. Yeah. So the Durham police, they decide to basically split their detectives into pairs to see who can solve it first. It's like a like a crime game. Let's see who can Great. get. Great. Let's make it a competition. Essentially, let's make this a contest to see who can who can get it done Great. the fastest. Mm-hmm. Great. So that brings us to two detectives that went by the names Fitz and Shep. And these are officers. <laughs> I had to throw that in there because it's in a lot of the research, and I was just like, "This is so eighties. I can't even deal." Yeah. So these are officers Bernie Fitzpatrick. <laughs> Fitz, of course, and John Shepard. They're paired up. You don't say. Yeah, Those correct. are their last names. <laughs> They're paired up to try to solve the Jessup case. Wonderful. Fitz and Shep go okay. through all of the evidence and information that they have on the case that they were given thus far, including the list that was provided by the Jessups about who had access to the home. And they start pursuing any leads they can. But they pretty quickly come up empty-handed. In February of 1985, so a couple months after she's found, they go back to the Jessups on Valentine's Day to boot. It's the 14th. Wow, these timelines are very close for, like, everything. I know. Yeah, super close. Crazy. Yeah. They go back to the Jessups to ask if they can think of anyone else that could potentially be a suspect. Like, we've exhausted all the people on this list, which... Like, let's do the next circle of people. Yeah. And they kind of say, like, they can't think of anybody that they would be confident giving up their name at all. You know, like, you don't want to out somebody if you're, like, That's a big allegation. Yeah. Um, But further pressing from the officers prompts Janet to state that she remembered their 24-year-old neighbor... Guy Paul Morin did not participate in the search for Christine. She also stated that he was, quote, a weird kind of guy who played the clarinet and was a beekeeper. There is nothing wrong with beekeepers. I, I knew you were going to take immediate offense to that. So, yeah, they, they basically are like, yeah, he's weird. He plays band. He plays the clarinet and he keeps bees. And again, weird is not guilty. And she's even prefaced this saying, like, I don't want to damage his name, but there's just something there that I I got a gut feeling. Trust your gut. Sure. Put the name out there. And That's I think okay when you... to reach out to police and say. Well, and she didn't reach I... out. When you're being incredibly pressured by police to think of somebody else, like. That too. Yeah. Sure. You're going to be like, yeah, the neighbor next door didn't help search and he's kind of weird. Yeah, I think it's still always worth it, though, if you have a gut feeling or a suspicion. Why not tell police? Call a tip line. They'll look into it, and if it's nothing, it's nothing. Yeah. So Guy Paul Morin, he was the the, the second youngest, sorry, of six kids. Uh, the Morin family had two boys and four girls. He was 24 years old and living next to the Jessups when his parent, uh, with his parents, sorry, when Christine went missing. He was working at a furniture manufacturing facility, sanding furniture, and he also played the saxophone and the clarinet in various bands, as well as, like I mentioned, he was a beekeeper. Uh, Which I feel like is less weird now, but I guess would stick out in the 80s. I'm not sure that that was super common. I feel like it's... Maybe didn't... I don't know. It's a lot more common now because it's like save the bees, save the environment. Like we we care a bit more now. We were really reckless in the 80s. We didn't give a shit about the bees. So reckless. And I honestly like bees still kind of freak me out in a lot of ways. Like when they sneak up out of nowhere, I'm still scared of getting stung. But I understand the value in them and I'm trying to 
educate myself and learn and learn to like them. And I am. We love you for it. Thanks. So the Morans, they, the bees, the Morans were said to like keep to themselves, but the Jessops had always regarded them as kind neighbors. Like they were a little bit strange in the grand sure. scheme of things. If you're comparing them to like every other cookie cutter neighbor, the friendly guys that are like come over for a barbecue and stuff, they just wave and smile. Probably right. They're yeah, exactly like they keep to themselves. Yeah. They wave. They're, they're kind, distant. but they're, they're not kind. like hey, want to be buddies? Exactly. Yeah. Hey, neighbor. <laughs> Once the police had his name, though, Fitz and Shep immediately began investigating this guy. On February 22nd, 1985, they approached Guy Paul for a conversation. They asked him how well he knew Christine, where he was on the day she went missing. And Guy Paul said that he didn't know Christine very well as he was 24 and she was nine. However, he did say that... Fair, typically. Right, yeah. He said that he had helped her once catch her dog, Freckles. He also said that the day that she went missing, he was at work. Um, And looking into this further, he actually punched out with a card at about 3.30 p.m. where he was working. And where he was working was 57 kilometers away. So they posited that he physically could not have made it home until the earliest 4.15. And Janet and... Kenny would have already been home by then. Okay. However, they also asked him why he didn't help search for Christine. And he basically said that he absolutely would have if the Jessops had asked. But he said that the entire town was looking for her. And him and his dad were, like, doing work on their house's foundation. So he just was like, what's one more? Like, they have enough help. They have enough help and we're busy. So, yeah. I don't know. Hmm. He should have said he was washing his hair. (laughs) The officers really felt that this was suspicious. And I guess there was also a comment made that was like really taken out of context where he kind of said something along the lines of like, oh, yeah, they're really, really sweet until they grow up about like little girls, kids or kids in general. And so the officers just really thought this was strange and they zeroed in on him. They thought he was weird. They had the guy. It is a weird remark. Um, He's a weird guy. So they zero in on Guy Paul Morin. Okay. When Christine's body was found, she had had one dark hair stuck in her necklace. And that piece of hair had been taken into evidence along with the underwear that was found beside her, which did have semen on it. To try and connect the hair to Guy Paul Morin, officers had an undercover officer. Now, this part is wild to me. Pose as the friend of Guy Paul Morin's band leader's daughter and had her, like, hang out with them for the day at practice. She told the class that she was doing a cosmetics class project on hair analysis and asked if she could pluck strands of everybody's hair for the project. So Guy Paul, of course, is completely unaware, A, that he's a suspect, and B, that this is anything other than... Snag a few of my plugs. Go ahead. cute girl asking for a piece of everybody's hair. Yeah, and it's a project for school. They probably think you're just going to be like, exhibit D, right? Like, you're not going to have a name. It's not going to matter. Yeah, so he willingly hands his hair over with everybody else, and this is when his hair is given to forensics. 
Now, hair analysis at the time was not accurate at all, and I don't even really think it is now, except for to test for DNA. No. Like hair, because like the strands, the follicles on our hair are all different. Like if you plucked two pieces of my hair, they wouldn't analyze the same to begin with. No. What if I have one that has damage from being dyed as, or like heat damage too? Like they're not gonna necessarily look the same. You're right. They should only be used for extraction purposes. And honestly, I feel like a lot of the times the amount of a hair they actually get isn't enough to get DNA out of. So I just feel like hair isn't, well, I don't know. It's just not top of the list anymore for things to look for. And back then DNA testing was pretty non-existent anyway. So they wouldn't have been using hair to test for DNA. All they were really using hair analysis for in the eighties was to like macroscopically rule people out. So like, if his hair Did you say macroscopically? Yeah, like to the naked eye. I know, I just think it sounds funny when you're like macroscopically. Macroscopically. Yeah, to like to rule people out like if his hair is blonde and the hair that they found is dark, well, he obviously didn't do it. But that's really yeah. the only thing that you could use it for. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I'm intrigued with where you're going with this. Oh. Should you ever be? So the, the hair sample, though, is still taken to forensics. Can't, it comes back macroscopically similar, which, like I said, just basically means, means that it looks similar to the naked eye. So this hair strand that was found looked similar to the naked eye to the hair strands on Guy Paul's head, which, like, if they're both dark, they're going to look the same. But, like, yeah, that could be the same for me and you. Right? Totally. Our hair, especially because we both dye our hair, we probably have so many hairs that are a very similar color mm -hmm. and so many hairs that are a completely opposing color. Now, this, this though, is where it gets kind of ugly. The forensic scientist assigned to this case also tragically mislabels the hair as microscopically consistent with the hair found on Christine's necklace, which, to be honest, couldn't have even really been done. No. The science wasn't there. I'm so annoyed with this guy. This same scientist, though, so, like, later, after a lot of things happen, which we'll find out about, but this same scientist would later say that the hair, quote, could have come from Guy Paul Morin, but that she also could have overstated her conclusions to the police. Oh, you don't say. Yeah, mm-hmm. At this point, though, they get the, they basically, all they hear is consistent match looks similar that's all that they hear and they out the durham police absolutely runs with it they've got their guy of course they do around why wouldn't they if they have nothing else and yeah. it's there's no other where to go that you do what you do and right? so much so pressure to them. solve this and i think yeah, immediate tunnel vision on this man yeah and he was next door yeah. he had access he knew her personally it just it fits too many criterias for them to just kind of almost not run with it, if nothing else. So mm -hmm. I get why they did as well. At the same time that they fake match this hair, the FBI, so they, as we hear in many cases like this, the FBI uh, gives a profile of the characteristics of somebody who may have committed this crime. The FBI label the person as white, 19 to 26 years old, Local, known to Christine, high school education, all traits that are consistent with Guy Paul Morin. So that means they've built a profile around someone they already have, which is also something we see still happen today and is very unfortunate. Correct. Is that they bring out other information following 
a capture and then they base that around it so that the public rallies behind the decision yeah and so we don't know for sure if that's like what the fbi was doing because they're just coming in as an outside party to give a a very small age window in that day and age sure um but the police definitely did get like a a full profile of who the fbi thought that this person could be and when they released the profile to the public they specifically chose to only include traits that were consistent with Guy Paul Morin, and they kind of left everything else out. And they say that this was to, quote, unnerve him. Um, but I think it was to, quote, make their case better. Nerve him? Unnerve him. <laughs> no, I know. I said, but I think it was to nerve him. Right, yeah. <laughs> Like, this information is enough for Fitz and Pat. They are convinced they have their guy. And Guy Paul Morin is arrested on his way to a band practice on April 25th, 1985. They pull him over and he literally thought that he was caught with getting caught without a seatbelt on. Surprise! He just wanted to play charge. his clarinet in peace. Yeah. He literally was like, oh shit, I, have, I don't have a seatbelt on. Like they're going to, I'm going to get in trouble for that. And then they're like, hey, first degree murder. And he's like, what? What? Yeah. He's interrogated for over six hours and repeatedly declared his innocence. Mm -hmm. Now, what about his alibi, you say? You ain't got no alibi, or do you? Well, he did, but the police pull his time cards at work showing that he physically could not have been home before 4.10 p.m. when Janet and Kenny got back from the family home. It was like 4.15 was the absolute earliest he could have made it home based on when he clocked out of work. Yeah. So officers Fitz and Pat go back to Janet and Kenny to, quote, retrace their steps the day that Christine disappeared. And they suggest that potentially Janet got the time wrong or that her clock was wrong that day. Um, Janet's like, I'm pretty sure that I'm correct. I don't. Why would I just pull 410 out of my ass? Like, I'm almost positive that I am. That's definitely like you walk in the door and check the clock and subconsciously remember it because it's not on the hour. Mm-hmm. Or you would have said, I don't know, like 4, 4.30 if you had no idea. Good Food is Canada's number one meal kit service that delivers right to your door. Good Food makes cooking fun, easy, and affordable. They offer different meal plans to fit your needs like vegetarian, clean 15, easy prep, and the most popular basket, the classic basket. Every recipe is packed with fresh produce that comes directly from farmers and with good food. You can skip the trip to the grocery store and have everything you need to make your curated meals delivered straight to your door. Sign up for good food today using the code free podcast by proxy to get your first classic box for free. That's free podcast by proxy when creating your good food account to get a classic box on us. Hi friends, if you like what you hear and you want to get even more content from us, we're officially live on Patreon. Patreon is a subscription service where you can get early access to our regular episodes, get bonus episodes, live Q&A sessions, and more. Visit the link in this episode description to learn more and sign up. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Podcast by Proxy. Katie and I are so appreciative of every single one of you for being here with us. If you want to support us even more, don't forget to hit the follow button wherever you're listening and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Growing the show means we will be able to invest more time into bringing you more stories like the one you're hearing today. Yeah, so so she at first was like, no, definitely I was not wrong. Like I got home at 410. And after Mm -hmm. further discussion with the officers, she agreed that it was possible that the clock could have been wrong. 
Eventually, okay. they push her hard enough on the topic that she says that she actually could have come home at 4.20 or 4.30, which would have made it possible for Guy Paul to have abducted Christine before her mom and brother got home. So they basically yeah, it gives like, him an extra 10-minute window, which is huge in something like this. Yeah, they just like lay out a perfect little timeline for themselves. I hate when police coerce someone into fitting the narrative to the story afterwards. Mm-hmm. I hate it. Oh, my God. It's so stressful. Guy Paul Morin is put on trial for the murder of Christine beginning January 7th, 1986. This trial had some seriously questionable evidence. Uh, among the other things that we have already discussed, there was actually a cigarette collected at the scene where her body was found, but it was conveniently lost when they discovered that Guy Paul was not a smoker. There was also um, red fibers that were called into evidence that were found on Christine's body and later also found in Guy Paul Morin's car. However, an anonymous letter later claimed that the forensic tech, who happened to be the same scientist who tested the hair on the necklace, wore a red sweater the day that evidence was tested and wasn't wearing a lab coat. Great. So just like the police officers picking up stuff with no gloves... Their lab techs are not taking the same precautions with their PPE. Yeah, so like this red Great. fluff could have got on anything at any time. From anywhere. From really. anywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. Before the first trial of Guy Paul also, they planted an undercover officer in his holding cell. And this guy's name is Gordon Hobbs. And when he came out of the cell, he stated that Guy Paul had made stabbing motions toward his own chest demonstrating how he committed the murder and also said that he claimed he would quote red rum the innocent now when Guy Paul hears the story he's like uh that's a wildly fabricated version of the conversation that actually took place apparently what happened was this undercover officer Hobbs actually asked him about his favorite movies and he couldn't remember the name of The Shining, where the little boy repeatedly croaks red rum. So he just referenced that. And then, and then, and then that. And then, oh and, then, and, then, and, then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then. I have nothing else also, to say. I will go on the record and out. say, like, I thought this guy was kind of a weenie when I first watched the shows and documentaries about this case. Same. So, like, Guy Paul isn't, like, my favorite person, and I'm totally on his team. So just to put it out there for people, like... I didn't really like this guy. It's so terrible, but I actually have notes, like, after it's proven that he didn't do it, I actually have notes that are like, why do I still feel like this guy did it, though? I know, like, you still <laughs> feel like he's up to something, and you don't know what. He he's just not, looks guilty of something. He's not. He he's definitely, a, probably a great guy. I can see, though, in this day and age and, like, what they're going on, Yeah, how he got pinned for it. I hate to say that. How weird but, can stand out. Yeah, yeah for sure. Mm-hmm. So this jailhouse informant undercover officer testimony comes out and his defense attorney is like, fuck, basically, Uh like, we're screwed. (laughs) He was convinced that this had, like, sealed this guy's fate. However, which I don't blame him. After just one day of deliberations on February 7th, 1986, Paul was actually acquitted of all charges. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, uh, it doesn't end here. Why would it? Never. That would be too simple. Yeah. 
The acquittal absolutely shocked the public. A lot of them still believed that the police did have the right guy. And for Christine's family, it was a huge loss for them because there's still no justice for For Christine. Um, You know, they either believe at this point that the person who brutally murdered her is just walking free um, you yeah. know, it's it's a lot of open. There's no answers for them, and that's I'm thinking it's you're at this next phase where you can start to grieve and relax a little bit because the person's locked up and then they're back out, and you're like, oh shit, yeah, hundred. And I also feel like there's always a little fear that you've just made an enemy out of someone. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. So the crown appeals the acquittal. This is successful. In 1987, the Court of Appeal ordered a new trial that would begin in 1990. Um, The court actually found an error in the judge's instructions to the jury regarding the meaning of reasonable doubt. This is how the decision gets overturned. It was something silly like... They... The way it was explained to them was like reasonable reasonable doubt... doubt beyond a shadow of like it i don't know it was just explained like it to was them worded wrong. badly it was worded so it just poorly. didn't make sense really mm-hmm. okay in in terms of what reasonable doubt actually meant fair so okay. the second trial starts in that. 1990 it's a mess uh the prosecution brought with them a lot of the same evidence that they used in the first trial except for they brought less uh a lot of the original evidence that was like t- had been proven tainted and things like that just kind of went missing and the crown they really relied heavily on their like theory and their theatrics and the story of what they thought happened rather than science, which as we know, criminal trials are a show. And they are. That's all you need a lot of the time is just a re- to put a really good fucking show on. Just like fucking gasoline on a fire. 100%. It's like an already shit situation and you're just amplifying. Oh, yeah. So their theory and the the plot that they laid out essentially for the jury was that Guy Paul Morin saw Christine with her recorder and lured her to his car with his own clarinet. So you like... They, they played so heavily into the Just recorder and clarinet musical aspect of this and made it out like he was some musical pervert. Sounds like when you have like two people that are actually like consenting adults dating are like they were drawn together by music. Yeah. So the same song danced through their hearts. This Ugh. trial, the second trial of Guy Paul lasts almost nine months. And this time the jury actually found him guilty. Of her murder on July 30th, 1992, he is found guilty of first-degree murder. Uh, and in the trial, after the verdict is read, um, Guy Paul, who was 32 years old at this point, blurts out, I am not guilty of this crime. Okay. One jury member told the Fifth Estate that she knew he was guilty because he never looked at them, the jury, while he was testifying. He didn't look at them, so he had to be guilty. He's terrified. He's innocent. Yeah. I'm annoyed. All right. So after the guilty verdict, Guy Paul Morin is taken to Elgin Middlesex Detention Center, which is essentially just like a holding place, before yeah. he is taken to one of Canada's most notorious institutions for violent offenders, Kingston Penitentiary. Oh, we've talked about this a few times. We have. Kingston Penn, uh, for anybody that doesn't know, was built in 1833, making it Canada's oldest institution. It was a maximum security prison used to house the most dangerous offenders. And 
It was also just a really vile place to be. Like it's, uh, I actually am going to do an episode on Kingston Pen one day. I have no idea. So don't like hold your breath for it or anything. So I feel like I've been talking about that for like a year. Um, but I have a lot of books and a lot of research and a lot of stuff. And it's, it's a really interesting piece of Canadian criminal justice history. Uh, Kingston Pen officially closed its doors in 2013. Um, but yeah. This would be an incredibly unsafe place, especially for somebody who was just found guilty of a sexual murder against a child. Um, there is a hierarchy yeah. in prison and si- ch- uh, child rapists and murderers are basically at the bottom of the list. So luckily, it. which I'm not mad about, but when you have been wrongfully convicted and you're put in that well, very unsafe position, I can't imagine how terrifying that would have been. Um <clears throat> I do think that if there's any question that someone might be innocent and they have appeals open, there should be more protection on them. Yeah, so at this point, he didn't have an appeal open yet, so he was just going in. But but he still has opportunity to appeal, does. so that's True. why I think that until all his appeals are denied or he's revoked that he's going to apply, I think it should be more fair supervised personally, yeah. but that's just because I do think there's a lot of wrongful convictions. Yeah, luckily for Guy Paul, so this had become such a media sensation that it was pretty well known. And one of the most like dangerous offenders at the time in Kingston believed in his innocence. So he was protected. <laughs> so everybody yeah. was basically told. And he's a dorky little man. If you look up his picture, like no offense, Guy, he, but you're just like, you're not going to go in there and make someone your bitch. He's not going to be, no, not doing well. And so, yeah, he they were basically told like he is not to be touched and he was escorted with like inmate escort security I just picture him with like a Terry Crews looking motherfucker mm-hmm. like yeah he was very yeah. lucky to be protected in there because that could have gone really south and again we don't really like him yeah. like, we're all for rooting for him but something about him yeah, watch um if you're interested. And we're still rooting for him. If you are interested in maybe why we feel this way, I would suggest watching the Crime Beat episode on this case because yeah, I think that's where you like really get a He's sense just, of yeah him. Um, like you could see why people thought he was guilty just based on the way he answers questions. Yeah, sure. They're uncomfortable, and I think that's what I don't like is I don't like trying to converse with people that I find uncomfortable. Yeah, and it's good to recognize, though, that, like, a lot of people are uncomfortable, especially in that kind of a setting, and, like, being strange or acting weird or how you think, like, not acting how you think somebody should act in this situation doesn't make them guilty. It's just really important to know that. As with the first verdict, the public in this case was incredibly split in the guilty verdict of Guy Paul after the second trial. Um, There was a poll conducted in 1993 that showed 53% of Ontario residents thought that he should be freed on bail. And Guy Paul was determined to appeal his guilty verdict and declare his innocence, so he hires a new lawyer, James Lockyer, and his co-counsel, Joanne McLean. Guy Paul, he's determined to appeal his guilty verdict and declare his innocence, so he hires a new lawyer, James Lockyer, and his co-counsel, Joanne McLean. And in 1993... They basically create a grassroots organization that they called Justice for Guy Paul Morin. And they successfully appeal the verdict. And Guy Paul is released on bail on February. They were so confident. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They. Uh, I love when law professionals will really put their name on a line being like, I know this person did not do this. Yeah, it's literally 
Justice for Paul Morin Committee is what they called themselves. How original. So they appeal the verdict. They win the appeal, which doesn't mean that he's acquitted. It just means that he's going to be granted a new trial. And he's released on bail February 9th, 1993. Now, fun fact. This committee... James Lockyer, Joanne McLean, and whoever else was involved in this. I believe that they had, like, a whole team. This committee oh, yeah. that helped Guy Paul Morin decides at this point to rebrand itself as the Association in Defense of the Wrongfully Convicted, which we now know is Innocence Canada. So this case actually Yay! formed Innocence Canada, <laughs> which was the same lawyer and the same uh, association that got David Milgard acquitted of his wrongful conviction. So, just along with his wonderful mom, everything is coming together. Coming up, innocence project. Yes. So yeah, they they basically rebrand as the Association Defense of the Wrongfully Convicted after deciding to broaden their mandate from just defending Guy to basically working on behalf of all wrongfully convicted Canadians, and that's how we now have Innocence Canada, which is a phenomenal organization. Um, Go check it out. I believe it's just innocencecanada.ca. Yeah, go read some of their stories on the website. Yeah, they have lots of stories, lots of information about wrongful convictions. I've referenced them before in episodes. And yeah, totally worth a gander on their website and just seeing what what they do. And I believe you can donate and things like that. So go check it out. Paul's appeal is scheduled for January of 1995, and while his lawyers were preparing for the appeal, they become aware of a significant breakthrough in DNA typing that would allow for testing on samples that had been previously deemed too deteriorated to, to test. Yes. Yay for science. Yay, And advancements science. and stuff. Yay, DNA. Yay. Yay, DNA. Yeah, DNA is really the only thing that mattered in this whole case. So just days before the appeal trial is scheduled to start, the results come back. So they have the underwear tested with this new DNA typing technology. The results down to the wire, hey. Three days before the appeal, the third trial starts. The results come back. The semen samples um, found not to be a match to Guy Paul Morin. Ding, ding, ding. We don't have a winner, people. Correct. So the day the trial is supposed to start, he is freed from jail and all charges against him are dropped. Guy Paul Morin spent nearly two and a half years in courtrooms, 18 months incarcerated, and over 10 years of his life fighting for his innocence. His legal bills totaled half a million dollars for which his parents mortgaged their home over and over and over to pay for. Yeah, it was the same as David's mom. She was... Like, raising money, remortgaging her house, selling things. Like, she was doing everything she could to get money just because the legal fees and the costs alone to fight. Yeah. Now, before we kind of continue on with the case itself, I do want to talk a little bit about what happened after this wrongful conviction um, um, and what kind of came of that. June 26, 1996, the lieutenant governor in general appointed Fred Kaufman, who was a former judge of the Quebec Court of Appeal, as the commissioner of an inquiry into the wrongful conviction of Guy Paul. This is quite famously known in the legal community as the Kaufman Report or the Morin Inquiry. 
Hearings began on February 10th, 1997 and lasted for 146 days, calling 120 witnesses and combing through over 100,000 pages of documents. Jesus Christ, that's a lot. Yeah, this report, it was released in two volumes on April 9th, 1998 and contained 1,380 pages and 119 recommendations. Uh, Most of the recommendations were aimed at... Uh, police tactics, police investigations, and things like that. Okay. The report names the root cause of this wrongful conviction as tunnel vision and defines tunnel vision as, quote, a single-minded and overly narrow focus on a particular investigative or prosecutorial theory so as to unreason- uh, yeah, unreasonably color the evaluation of information received. It's a good way of putting it. It is. I mean, I know it's the actual way, but it It's actually a very legal way that makes sense. Yes. Many of the recommendations in this report were related to how police and prosecutors can avoid a narrow mindset ranging from better interviewing techniques, improved methods of gathering and storing evidence from a crime scene, continuing education of officers. It spoke to bad science, unreliable witness testimony, bad jailhouse informant testimony, um, all in contributing factors to the wrongful conviction of Guy Paul. Uh, the wrongful conviction right. of Guy Paul is cited as one of Canada's most famous wrongful conviction cases, and the inquiry led to significant alterations of how police investigate murders in Canada. Like, significant. Oh, for sure, Huge yeah. changes were made because of this. <sighs> we gotta love the innocence part. I know we just said it, but, like, we really have to give them a lot of respect for what they do, because... I, I don't understand how they even fund what they do with just donations mm-hmm. and do the work that they do. And they so do really good amazing. work. And like this case yeah. specifically, this wrongful conviction really did cause a huge ripple effect in the Canadian justice system, how cases are handled, um, which oh, is great. A lot of people had to take a second look at, like, review your work, people. Yeah. Which was good. It needed to be done. Yeah. So if you are legally savvy or you're interested in that at all and you haven't heard of it or read it it's the Kaufman report I have linked it in the episode description show note things um there's a whole got you covered there's a whole copy of the report if you want to read it of course I could do probably a whole episode on just that but I'm not going to so read it yourself I'm just not Maybe on Patreon. Subscribe. <laughs> Patreon.com slash podcast by proxy. I mean I could but I'm not dollar a month tier will get you bonus episodes maybe it'll be on there one day I don't know you're pretty much a get your eyes off their ass and read it yourself. Pretty much, yep. So now, of course, this acquittal, this, this acquittal is incredible news for Guy Paul Morin. Like I said, it sent a shockwave through the Canadian justice system. However, Christine's family once again was heartbroken and left back at square one with no answers at all as to who was responsible for the brutal kidnapping, rape, and murder of their daughter. So while we have something really exciting, awesome going on in one corner, we have something equally tragic and horrible still happening in another corner. Re-traumatizing. Re-traumatizing. Wounds are wide open, um, and there's no answers. And so, of course, we always want somebody who's not, not responsible not to be behind bars, but... All of the, the flip side, all of the yeah. tunnel vision on Guy Paul has taken away from who actually killed her. We mm-hmm. we need we don't have and we do see this I think like we said before when 
people have nothing else to go on and one name goes out and a few pointers match. It's just, it, this happens so often. So again, check your work people. Yeah. Like make sure the evidence is there. Yeah. Build the case properly before an arrest. Like there's so many things that can be done that need to be done. And also not excluding and including information as it pertains to what you want the case outcome to be. So you can close it. So you can give your community peace of mind. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I don't even have anything to say to that. We have opinions. She nailed it. Um, so because of the, I don't even know, the gross mishandling. Is that the right way to put this? Yeah, I guess. Of this case. I mean, if that's what you can even call it. Yeah. yeah. Did, was it handled at all? I'm not sure. Because of the gross mishandling. Because this case was not handled. Because this case was not handled by the Durham police. Um, and, you know, the inquiry and all that stuff. Yeah. It had to be transferred out. There's no way that the Durham police could continue investigating this case. So Rihanna had her baby. It's transferred to Toronto Police Service. And it kind of sits in Toronto Police cold cases for like 30 years. There's no answers. Every few years on the anniversary, you'd see a news article basically saying mm-hmm. Christine Jessup's family like still, still missing, has no answers. Still looking for still answers. Still devastated. 30 They're years. still missing information. Yes. 30-year anniversary rolls by. Mom's still heartbroken. Her parents did divorce at a, a certain point. Um, the loss of Christine was a huge I mean, strain on expected, them. I mean, honestly. It, yeah, it I happens. I don't know how parents stay together after losing a child. Because you always want to point blame on someone. And I can't imagine... And this is just speaking honestly as someone who is... A, like, I get... I, I get angry about stuff and I hold it for a bit. I couldn't imagine it was easy on her dad to know that her mm. mom knew she wasn't going to be home. Even though her mom did nothing wrong. Or like... I just couldn't imagine that kind of resentment or that peace there. Or her guilt getting in the way even if he doesn't feel that Or way, on the flip you know? side, him knowing that... Like, he was in jail and couldn't protect her. Yeah. Because that's another, so like, of, you could feel really or guilty. Or her mom being like, this wouldn't have happened if both her parents had been at home kind of thing. Totally. Yeah. So there's yeah. so many ways that this could tear people apart from the inside of them, even just their thought process behind what's happening. Yeah. I know that that was Ugh. a big factor in the splitting up of Madeline McCann's parents. They have actually been quite public about that, about how public opinion it tore them apart the case itself not you know not knowing what happened to madeline all of that was just too much and they did they did end up splitting over it which is so sad because you've already lost one piece of your world to have the rest of it just crumble it's just very super sad yeah i think there's a flip side though too if the like say you have a child with someone and they're just like their father in our situations and the father's a constant reminder of your child that's gone missing mm-hmm. or has been murdered. That could also be equally as difficult. The reminder in a way you used to celebrate could be a total negative now. Yeah. I, I'm a carbon copy of my mother. I think we all know that. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> um, okay, back She's to... She's not lying, folks. Back to the case. This case passed over a lot of desks over the years, Many investigators that would kind of come and go through the homicide department over Toronto Police Service. Um, It's not until 2019 when a detective named Steve Smith is assigned to the homicide squad at Toronto Police Service to work on an archiving project with cold cases that moves would really start to be made in this case. So Steve Smith. Wow, what a weird project for this to be caught on. 
Yeah, so Steve Smith, he was only 13 years old when Christine was murdered. He grew up nearby in Hamilton, Ontario. He actually remembered how... I thought you were going to say he was 13 years old when he started working on this project. No! I was like, oh my god. Sorry, I wasn't laughing at him. When this case happened. You were like, he was 13 years old. I was like, in a little lab coat being like... Just putting some stuff in the computer. Can you imagine we assign a 13-year-old to the case and it gets solved? We can all just, like, show ourselves out. Hey, there's probably no tunnel vision. We're done for the rest of our eternal lives. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so he was 13 years old when she was murdered. He grew up nearby in Hamilton, Ontario, and so he remembered how her disappearance and murder, like, changed his childhood, his freedom. Shook your neighborhood. The way that yeah. his, you know, mom allowed him to go out. And play with his friends before just wasn't the same anymore. He really knew the case well and it, it hit home for him. So he, like I said, yep. he's assigned to the homicide squad. He's asked to work on this archiving project for cold cases. And of course he comes across the Christine Jessup case. And I think just with his connection to it and how like big this high profile, how high profile this case was and how it's like, yeah. how the fuck is this not solved how like could you we not have dna on her, her fucking underwear like it's 2019 how is this not solved he's analyzing all the evidence kind of just wondering what is the next case what is the next step to solve this case bro's just down here doing little tests on his own like, what the <laughs> what what do i have to do to get this solved basically yeah he, like what can i use to bring this case to new light what might have been missed back then that we just didn't know that we know now yeah and so he hears about a two-week seminar at the ontario police college and it features a session on forensic genealogy which, if you listen to our CrimeCon episode, you know that we went to a seminar by the DNA Doe Project, who works with forensic genealogy to identify Jane and John Doe's in cases where they are unidentified. Yeah, it's incredible work. And they need people, if you know anything about genealogy, go to their website, check it out. They need people. Mm-hmm. Now, on the flip side of that use for genetic genealogy... Um, Detective Steve Smith also knew that forensic genealogy had recently been used to solve the Golden State Killer case from uh, California, which was our favorite Paul Holes, who we also saw which at Crime is a Con. case with a McNamara in it, as I mentioned last week. Yeah, so forensic genealogy it, 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 at this point had kind of been started to be used not only to identify like unidentified remains, but to try and link together family Suspects. trees to figure out who could have killed somebody in an unsolved case so they're kind of working backwards and using it, it a bit different ways yeah it does this would be though the first time that anything like this would be attempted in canada i did mention it on the crime con episode forensic genealogy is still very new to canada and we are very weary about it in a lot of ways not like the states where they're just like using it for everything now um so, disclosing an entire family, too, is risky. Mm-hmm. It's not just disclosing a suspect. Yeah. You now are potentially putting other people's information out there or putting out the connectors because a lot of case files become public, too. Yeah. Genealogy is a very risky item to have in a case, especially if it's high profile, and you might still not get a conviction. Yeah. But in a case it's like this, scary. I think when you're, you've exhausted literally every avenue and it's been 30-something years... Then it's a great idea, yeah. I think. So Steve Smith, he knows it's not ever been a thing in Canada, but he's like, I'm going for it. He finishes the seminar, and a few months after that, he's approached by somebody from Othram Incorporated, which is a lab in the States that specializes 
in forensic genealogy, assisting law enforcement, like I said, with unsolved murders, identifying Jane Doe's and John Doe's, etc. Yeah. Now, a little bit about genetic genealogy and how it differs from traditional DNA matching. I don't, I'm not an expert by any means, and I have actually linked a video. There's an article in the show notes that has a video where, like, an actual real scientist explains how they used it in this case. So, again, I suggest watching that because I'm sure that they're smarter than me. But I'm going to do my best to kind of fucking fake my way through it. Fake it till you make it, baby. Unlike traditional forensics, which can identify up to approximately 20 genetic markers, genetic genealogy can identify hundreds of thousands of genetic markers that helps to identify very distant relatives. So in this case... (laughs) Steve Smith submits the underwear DNA sample to Othram, which generated a profile and uploaded it to GEDmatch, which Katie has spoken to us. The raw data we were talking about. Yes. Yeah, a couple weeks ago. Do you want to explain that a little bit, just for anybody who didn't listen to that episode? Just about how GEDmatch works with like 23andMe and Ancestry and things like that? Yeah, so DNA matching can't actually reach out to a lot of the big companies like 23andMe and Ancestry to get your data. However, you, if you yourself have taken that test and consented to all the information, you can go into your profile. Uh, You go into your profile and then I believe there's results. And then in there you can extract your raw data. And what that does is it gives you essentially a large, I think it's a zip file that you then go on to the DNA Doe Project, or any such website that you want to, to look up what site you would like to upload your raw data to so that companies like The Innocent Project can then cross-reference it with what they're doing and have a simple, a, essentially a simpler form of access. Yeah, so that's when basically these companies or like this lab, for example, generates a profile, uploads it to GEDmatch to see what kind of matches they can get from there. Mm-hmm. Now, kind of explained it before on the CrimeCon episode, but I will go into it a little bit here just in case you didn't listen or just to make it fairly somewhat simple. I might just make it more confusing. Who knows? But genetic oh, genealogy is not the same as a DNA match. Essentially, it's going to match you with anybody that has a similar DNA marker to you in the system. This could be like distant 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 relatives it just has to have like a it's like a very small there's so many markers that they can find that's not like regular dna matching a dna match a good way to think of it is like if you want a dna match it's like you'll be like one in 275 million people whereas when you do like the reverse of it to find a family tree you're essentially putting your dna dna out there and saying like Find me the small percentage of people that have like a 30% match Mm -hmm. to me. And then I will look through my family and be able to put them where they need to be based on the percentage they match with me. Right. So in this case, they actually managed to get five distant cousin matches in the second or third cousin range on both the maternal and paternal side. So once... Second cousin's really close, too. Yeah. So once they have these matches, this is when they basically need investigators to start conducting interviews and significant research to build out a family tree. Now, I actually just watched the documentary last night called Our Father 
I'm not sure if you've watched it. Oh my it god, yet. I watched it the other day. If you want to know exactly, I want to do an episode on that. Right, but if you, if anybody is, yes. would like to know exactly what investigators do in genetic genealogy, just watch. Go it. watch our family and watch what the girl Jacoba does. Our father. We'll watch what it's got. Oh, sorry, our father. But watch what the girl Jacoba does. She literally, I was like sitting watching it and I was like, Brandon, She's a badass. this girl is literally could be a genetic genealogist. Like she could work for these people. She, she's building out a family tree. She's doing exactly what they do in genetic genealogy to build out trees and to find this one person. Like that's literally what she did. I was yeah. enthralled. I was amazed. What a bad bitch. You wonder why last week I was like, I'm intrigued by genealogy. <laughs> Yeah, like, honestly, the best way to explain it is just, like, go watch that and watch what she does to figure it out because Mm -hmm. that's what she's doing. She's messaging people to say, do you have anybody with this last name in your family? Do you have anybody like this in your family? Like, building out those family trees and, like, trying to make them full. And then the nice thing about something like 23andMe or Ancestry, if you do it, is based on their knowledge of these percentage, they even say, hey, we think this is your second or third cousin likely here probably with this connection so they try Mm -hmm. to also help you out as much as possible so it's pretty interesting yeah like i i did it and i found my cousin who lives in the states who is confirmed my cousin we used we visited once when we were kids apparently that's wild and she's from scotland yeah our father go watch it it was first of all fascinating second of all terrifying and third of all incredibly interesting and jacoba deserves like an award just an, I don't know what for, but just she deserves an award because she's amazing. I love that she just like 100%. really took that. Anyways, uh, let's keep going. I loved it. So though, a team of in a scary way. Yeah, it's terrifying. A team of retired detectives and an in-house genealogist from Othram get to doing exactly what we're talking about: work on building out these family trees, and this is how they eventually narrow it down to one person that they deem to be most likely to have committed. The crime. Um, now, this still isn't technically considered a match. At this point, a name is submitted to the police, and this is where they have to find a way to directly text, test this person's DNA sample to confirm their suspicions, essentially. Like, building out the family tree and narrowing it down to one person doesn't mean that that person absolutely 100% committed the crime it just means that this is the most likely person and their name is then submitted this is the closest dna match we have in the system right now well and like after speaking to people maybe they're connected to the victim in some way they've linked a, a connection um it's still really just like a best guess at that point they yeah. then So after over six months of work on uh, August 7th, 2020, genealogist Anthony Redgrave submitted the name Calvin Hoover as a candidate for potential identification to the Toronto Police Service of who could have murdered Christine. Investigators looked into Calvin Hoover and they actually found that he committed suicide in 2015, um, which was kind of a bummer because it meant that they may have to exhume his body to test a sample. However... They did find that when his autopsy was conducted, the coroner actually took two vials of his blood and they were stored. So they had his blood. They used it to test against the semen in the the underwear left at Christine's murder scene. And it was considered to be a conclusive match or uh, three trillion times more likely that it was Calvin Hoover than not. 
is how a match yes. works in the DNA world. It doesn't come back like match. It comes back with like a percentage. And in this yeah, case, like it was three trillion match, times. These didn't. But we'll agree that based on these markers, you're a one in this. That's why you'll frequently hear two people at trial say, um, like, it's conclusive with or it's similar to mm -hmm. or I would deem it close to or acts as. Yeah. They're not, they're very careful to say it is. Mm-hmm. So this was, of course, huge. Uh, we have a DNA genetic match. Uh, Calvin Hoover, the families are informed. The media is informed. This case, after 36 years, is no longer cold. Uh, but who is Calvin Hoover? I, I'm sure that we all want to know. And we are getting to the end. I don't have too much on the scumbag because I eh. refuse to give him much time and energy. Time. But I do want to close it off properly. So Steve Smith who we've just been talking about, was the investigator that delivered the news to Christine's mother, Janet. The entire Jessup family was shocked when they found out who it was that had committed this crime. Why? How does he know the family? What's the connection? It turns out Calvin Hoover and his wife, Heather, had both worked with Bob Jessup and their families spent significant time together, leading all the way up until Christine's disappearance. The Hoovers used to babysit the Jessup kids and vice versa. They spent plenty of time together hosting barbecues at each other's homes, hanging out with their kids. Um, and how supportive and helpful were they when she went missing? Oh, just probably very. Uh, Heather was super. So yeah. we'll, we'll get there. Calvin oh, Hoover was sure 28 years old in 1984 when Christine went missing. He actually was included in the list of people that had access to the home when nobody was there that Janet and Bob had given to police during the in initial investigation. Calvin was never once interviewed by police. Never. As a male adult figure that babysits those children, that should have been one of the first people you looked into. And I'm not trying to say anything rude against an adult male, but given what we know about that time and what was looked into that should have been someone we looked into heather was interviewed calvin never was so a little bit about them the man calvin met his wife heather in 1977 um she already had two sons from a previous marriage who he eventually adopted and then they did go on to have two biological children together in 1984 the hoovers were living kind of nearby the jessups and both calvin and heather worked at Eastern Independent Telecom, so like a telecom company, where they met Christine's dad, Bob Jessup. Heather was a dispatcher, Calvin was a cable installer, and Bob was considered the lead hand of the cable installers. Um, and we know from working in an environment like that that you just like get really close to your coworkers. I don't know what it is yeah, about sure. that kind of an environment, but field work jobs tend to, strange. which is weird because you think you're all out doing weird things. But I feel like the warehouse where you're in the morning, yeah. at lunch, and at night, it's like the locker room. Yeah. You get really close to those people. Yeah. So the Hoovers and the yeah. Jessup started spending time together, and Heather said specifically that her and Janet really hit it off. Like the moms really hit it off, and they had kids similar age. So. Um, oh, you know, they would nice. hang out and stuff, which is great. Heather said that the day that she got home from work and learned that Christine disappeared, she dropped everything and went straight to Queensville to start helping search. Um, and this is when, of course, the police confirmed that Heather was interviewed as a part of their in initial investigation extensively, like for hours. 
when they asked where she was when Christine was taken, she stated that she was at work. And she also told them that she believed her husband, Calvin Hoover, was also working during the incident. Um, the police literally just never followed up with Calvin. They, they just took they it, just at, face it at face value. Oh, he was working. Ugh. And as a result, they never actually confirmed his alibi of being at work. And this oversight has never been explained. There's just no answer for that. Like, was it sloppy police work or was it a personal connection? We don't know. Yeah, I'm going to go with the former just based on everything else I've heard about the police Same. investigation. But either way... Um, He's never interviewed. It also turns yeah, out... and again, we love police, but we will always knock someone for not doing their job. Like, totally. that was your job. Now, get this. This part is just wild to me. It turns out October 1st, 1984, which was two days before Christine went missing, Janet had taken the kids over to visit the Hoovers, and while she was there, she mentioned that she was going to be going to visit Bob in jail in two days, and that Christine was too young to be in that type of environment meaning Calvin would have known the incredibly short window of time that Christine would have been left alone. And to think, that's just something you tell your girlfriend over coffee while your kids are playing. Mm -hmm. You don't even think that you need to be on guard saying something like that. Yeah, like when Janet recalled this conversation, she was basically like, "I, Calvin might have been in earshot, but it wasn't like a conversation that she had with him. He would have just been been there. Oh, idea. Yeah, Mm -hmm. no, that's disgusting. Yep, and then the police also learned that Calvin was familiar to the area that Christine was found in. He had a friend that lived really close to there, and the two of them often would go and do, like, outdoor activities in the bush. So the police have no reason to believe that this friend was involved in what happened to Christine, but the area was well known to Calvin. He was out there often. Yeah, it just made the connection to why he would have been yeah. out there previously and known the area. Yeah, it just it just kind of makes a lot of puzzle pieces connect together when there were so many whys in this case. It just all really, when they figured out it was Calvin and they started to dig into his life and who he was, it all just was like light bulb, like it all made sense. Jesus. Upon finding out... Again, it's a puzzle. You gotta get all the pieces. Yeah. Upon finding out that it was her husband or her ex-husband, because they did eventually divorce, Heather and Calvin did divorce. Um, So upon finding out that it was her ex-husband, I guess, who committed this horrific act against Christine, who she loved so much, Heather said that she was devastated and totally shocked. She said for 10 years, Calvin never showed a single emotion or remorse about it. He watched her grieve. He visited Christine's grave. He attended the funeral and the wake extending his condolences to the family he had confronted heather about losing um christine for literally 10 years and she like could not believe that he was responsible for what actually happened to her however it does seem based on like everything i've read and kind of pieced together that calvin was really going downhill in the years after christine's death um Heather said that the marriage became really difficult. The two of them separated in 1993. She described him as moody and grumpy and said that the last two to three years were hell for her and the kids. Investigators have spoken to over 100 people to try and, like, figure out who this guy was. And by the sounds of it, in the mid-90s, there was a big change in Calvin. And this is when he started to really go downhill. His addiction really started to kick in. I guess he had, like... Suffered from alcohol and addiction issues 
um, in his life. Previously. Yeah. Um, but in 1991, he filed for bankruptcy. And then it seemed he started drinking a lot heavier around the same time that Guy Paul Morin was acquitted through DNA. In when there's guilt on top of it, because now you've ruined someone else's mm-hmm. life as well. Like, another layer of that when you're already struggling with that? Oh, my God. Yeah. So, around that time, it just got even worse. 1996, he pled guilty to impaired driving. Um, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in 2010 after the death of his second wife, Joanne, in 2009. It seemed like there was just a lot of drinking, a lot of bad behavior going on in the 90s kind of thing like he just went very downhill he lost his family he filed for bankruptcy he was drinking and doing drugs and he started gambling a lot um in 2014 calvin attempted what the police called suicide by motor vehicle but he survived and in 2015 he attempted suicide again this time in his garage with his pills and carbon monoxide And he was found by his son, whom he lived with at the time. There was a yellow sticky note left on the bathroom mirror that read, quote, I I hope you all have a good life. Yeah. So still, you you still took it to your grave. You know what I mean? Like, you still, it's wildly shocking to me. That was just like, bye. Yeah. Hope you, hope you all have a good life. After confirming with his DNA that Calvin Hoover was responsible for Christine's death, the Toronto police released a statement to the public. They said, quote, if he were alive today, we would arrest Calvin Hoover for the murder of Christine Jessup. There are no winners in this announcement. There is no reason to celebrate. It does, however, allow us to take a major step forward in our efforts to bring justice to Christine's family. Uh, They also confirmed that Calvin's DNA had been run through databases across Canada, the U.S., and the U.K., and had not been linked to any other crimes, but they are going to basically continue testing for this year over year. Yeah. Christine's brother, Kenny, was only 14 years old when she disappeared, but said that he believed from day one that she was taken by somebody who knew the family and knew his dad was in jail and that they were going to visit him that day. And I'm, that's crazy. I mean, that's basically Again, this is why it. kids don't get tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. A kid knew what was up. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that is. This has been a heavy two weeks. This has been a heavy couple weeks, but that is basically it for this case. It's obviously solved now. Calvin Hoover wasn't able to be brought to proper justice because, well, we all know why. I think there's peace of mind, though, that that person isn't out there hurting other people, though, mm-hmm. in a way still that can give a certain form of like comfort and to grieving Mm -hmm. yeah i hope yeah and then i guess um Paul morin's sister denise um kowalski made a statement after it was confirmed that it was calvin not him Basically saying, because I guess uh, Guy Palmorn's father passed away before this could be resolved, just said, if my dad was alive, my gosh, he would just be so happy. He knew in his heart his son would have never done that. Um, And it seems like, you know, they were really happy that there was an answer for Christine's family. And yeah. I mean, it's it's something. Yeah. It's not exactly what everyone was hoping for, but what we were hoping for is that this never would have happened. Yeah. And it happened, so 
But yeah, this At is, least um, there was some resolution and this person isn't out hurting anyone else. There's just a lot that go- went on in this case. A lot of players, a lot of victims, a lot of changes in our justice system. It was pretty like monumental case. Yeah. It's de- devastating that a nine-year-old had to lose their life and a 24-year-old had to lose essentially 10 years of his life for all of that to happen. But ultimately, we have a better policing system now because of it and... Rest in peace, Christine. Yeah, we have to look at where we are. Rotten rather hell, than Calvin Hoover. Because we can't change them. Yeah, beat it, buddy. Mm-hmm. And that's it for me. Well, I think seeing as we just hit the 130 mark, that's a really good point. It's house possession day for me. I'm going to go and celebrate and get my keys. And pretty soon I'm going to have a recording room instead of being in the living room. If this It's going to be amazing. If I was awfully echoey in this last two weeks episode, it's because I'm literally sitting in an empty room trying to get this done before I have to pack up my office stuff. Um, She's telling the truth. I'll be back, though, with, like, proper audio and maybe a new mic soon now that the house is bought. Woo! So <laughs> that's exciting. Um, follow us on socials at Podcast by Proxy. Send us a Gmail if you feel so inclined. If we don't reply right away, it's because we're really bad at replying to our emails. We will get to you. Um, yeah. There's a lot of emails out I there these days. I promise we do read them all, though, and we really, like, we take case suggestions and yes. everything to heart. We do read them. We're not ignoring you. We're just busy gals. So... And don't be afraid, because um, Olivia can always tell me as well, like, if we haven't replied to you, feel free to message on social media and just say, like, hey, I emailed you guys. Do you mind checking it out? We do not take it offensively. No. Um, and then one of us will take a look at it and get back to you, because sometimes, yeah, she's right. We don't check our email very often. Literally comment on one of our Instagram posts and be like, hey, I emailed you, or hey, I DM'd Bitch, check you, your you emails. Me, and believe <laughs> me, I'll get to you. Um <laughs> But we'll find you. Yeah, that's it. Hopefully we'll be back next week with not a kid case. And also stay tuned. I think it's going to be this month um, in June, but there will be an episode airing from a different podcast on our feed. There will be a week that goes up that's not us and we're going to swap with another podcast. So keep your eye out for that. And um, that's really exciting. We love working with other podcasts and supporting uh, especially like girls in the true crime space. I don't know what it is. I'm I've never been like a a gal pal kind of gal. I think we both know that. That's why we have each other. But um, I love meeting and supporting other female creators in the true crime space, especially like that are in the same boat as us. We're just kind of getting yeah. the hang of it and starting to feel a little bit of confidence in our work. So getting the swing of you things. You want to work with us. If you have a podcast, it doesn't have to be true crime related. Send us a Gmail and um, we will definitely get back to you. Yeah. It yeah. Has been lovely. Please do. Peace. Bye. I'll call you soon. Okay. <gasps> okay. Bye. 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 How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fuck me.